Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Sarah Best, Associate Professor and Co-Director Endourology Fellowship at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison, Wisconsin. She is a leading figure in stone prevention, dietary strategies in stone patients, and quality of life topics as it relates to urinary stone disease. Today, we will be discussing the metabolic evaluation and simple ways to uh, treat your stone patients and prevent stone recurrence uh, in uh, your urinary stone patients. Dr. Best, welcome, and thank you very, very much for lending your expertise to our guest today. Thank you. I really enjoy the opportunity to get to chat with everybody this morning. <clears throat> so, Sarah, what uh, currently, uh, you know, back in the 90s, uh, UT Southwestern, Dr. Pack and company uh, really kind of laid out a, a lot of gold standards for metabolic evaluation and and um, you know maybe even some simplified treatment regimens. What 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 in your mind is considered the gold standard today for metabolic evaluation? Not only from what we order, but uh, maybe timing from last procedure. What is included? Uh, and maybe just touch on on that for a couple minutes, please. Yeah, great question. You know, I think that I'm always telling my patients, you know, we often see uh, people at the time that they need a surgery for stones, say they've been diagnosed with a large stone volume or they've dropped a ureteral stone. And so the surgical discussion takes the forefront uh, primarily in a lot of those conversations. But I always am telling patients that the real wins in stone disease, I think, are in the prevention rather than in the surgical, although it's amazing what we can do, you know, without a single incision. Um, uh, until we are able to get rid of all tubes completely without problems, uh, I think surgery always is going to have uh, some uh, downsides to it. So if we can prevent stones in the first place, that's really uh, where the winds are. So I think we are broadening uh, the number of patients that we think are good candidates for stone prevention and evaluation. Um, but I also think we are in an era of needing to simplify what we as urologists are expected to do. Uh, I'm really lucky at the University of Wisconsin to have a uh, excellent uh, world-renowned uh, colleague, Dr. Chris Penniston, who's a uh, PhD in nutrition, who is the world's expert on diet and kidney stones, I think. So I can get a deep dive into patients' diets to look at um, what factors might be contributing. But for um, most of us, I think that's a real challenge to do within our, our busy clinical practices. So I think um, stone disease and the medical management of it can hopefully be simplified down to the level of making overall healthy recommendations for our patients' uh, diet and lifestyle uh, in the, the general uh, view of their entire entirety of their health, be it heart disease or diabetes or obesity. I think trying to, um, the, the gold standard, if you will, today, I think is to personalize our medicine and our approaches uh, to have them be 
um, not necessarily just unique to managing their stone health, but their overall health. So um, I think the workup of these things can be certainly the, the 24 hour urine, uh, a urinalysis and some basic uh, metabolic chemistries, a, a BMP, uh, uh, serum calcium, uh, potentially a PTH and a uric acid can be really helpful uh, if you're going to start uh, delving into the specifics of medical management. Um, but I think that the, the point I hope to make is that all of our patients with stone disease, no matter how much workup or testing a patient is able or willing to participate in and you feel comfortable managing, and I hope that everybody can undergo some sort of counseling that will reduce their risk of stone formation. Sure, I, you know, that's great. Uh, you know, obviously what's good for the heart and lungs and brain are good for the kidneys. Um, you know, you and I both live in the Midwest and it, it's, it's no secret that in the Midwest we have really a very, very high number of uh, patients with obesity and glucose intolerance and, and so on. And, and quite frankly, I, many of my patients just come in and say, you know what, I'm really not gonna change much. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe take some dietary changes, but I, you know, I love my caloric intake and my sweet tea from McDonald's and such. And I mean, how do you respond to them? And what kind of things do you do differently with the people who are a little bit reluctant to change their kind of good health, good diet uh, uh, moniker? Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree. I see folks like that all the time. And, uh, you know, most of them are feeling that way and may not volunteer that information uh, quite so readily to let us know that's where they're at. But um, it, it changes hard. Any sort of lifestyle change is hard. If, if it was easy, we would all be uh, stick thin marathon runners. So um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the challenge of that. Um, for dietary therapy, I try to spend more time telling patients things to add to their diet rather than a heavy restriction, right? So restriction feels sad and limiting and uh, an impossible barrier, I think, for a lot of us. But I think, you know, telling folks that adding more fruits and vegetables adding more liquids that are no or very low calorie are big strategies that I pursue um, rather than necessarily saying, hey, you got to stop, you know, eating desserts and cheese and high sodium uh, lunch meats and things like that. You know, we'll try to get there. But I think uh, an initial strategy is to try to get somebody to buy into adding things. Um, you know, I do think it's high yield to hit things like sugared or high caloric beverages, um, because we know that overall health wise and for weight management and diabetes, those are some really uh, bad actors. So that is one I will spend time if somebody is drinking a ton of uh, um, regular soda on a daily basis. Uh, that's an area that I'll try to intervene. But I think adding is a helpful start, at least to get patient buy in. Great. And you, you did mention some of the laboratories that, uh, you know, we typically get. Are there are there any kind of uh, non-traditional labs or any kind of unique things that you guys are doing in Wisconsin that uh, the listener may not be privy to or, or may not have thought of that uh, we might want to add to our basic panel of, uh, you mentioned PTH and some, do you get vitamin D? How important is vitamin D in, in, in these patients? Maybe, maybe touch on some of the peripheral labs that really might be very helpful, but we don't necessarily think about a lot. 
Yeah, especially you and I here in the Midwest with our uh, longer, cold, dark winters uh, in particular, I think vitamin D deficiency is um, something that's very common. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, it also is, I think, thankfully becoming something that our primary care colleagues are more and more uh, aware of and treating uh, in their practices with uh, vitamin D supplementation. So the reason we care about vitamin D as stone formers is because vitamin D is important for the handling of calcium uh, in our bodies and maintaining calcium homeostasis. So uh, excess calcium uh, that we absorb into our system will typically be filtered in the nephron and end up in hypercalciuria, especially for patients who are prone to that. So, um, so that is something we're trying to manage. So uh, another issue with vitamin D is if people are vitamin D deficient, they will typically have a high PTH level. Uh, so they will appear to have hyperparathyroidism, but it's secondary hyperparathyroidism. So you may have a patient who has a normal serum calcium, but you're checking that PTH and it's high and you don't know, is this somebody with um, the, the beginning of uh, primary hyperparathyroidism or is this another cause? And so checking that vitamin D and if it's low and you replete that to a normal level, um, the PTH level should normalize and then you'll know that it was a secondary issue. The other issue that I'm sometimes seeing is that some patients get put on really high doses of vitamin D uh, and are kept on that. And a high dose might be needed in the repletion phase uh, of somebody with a very low level of vitamin D, but typically it's not needed as a maintenance dose. And so if you overconsume vitamin D, um, you will uh, drive your urine calcium level. So it's another reason to kind of check where people are at there. We usually want to have a number, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50, typically, I would say, uh, to aim for a vitamin D level uh, in our stone formers, because bone health is very important. We would never sacrifice bone health. Uh, we can manage the hypercalciuria, um, but that's a, a number that we're, we're chasing. I always tell patients I'd rather have them have a stone than a fractured hip. So I absolutely, absolutely. far more yeah. likely to be life-threatening uh, in our older patients. And just a kind of a quick tidbit, tidbit is the uh, vitamin D a thousand units a day. Is that kind of the going rate that you typically put these patients on? Yeah, I think in, you know, it's going to depend of course on what their, the foods they're consuming uh, contain, how much sunlight people are getting. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, adjusting it based on uh, what their vitamin D levels are and uh, about a thousand can be a useful um, maintenance dose in folks. So before we get on to some of the kind of treatments or empiric medicines, things like that, I have one other, uh, one kind of last um, uh, evaluation question. So it's concerning volume. Um, I oftentimes get um, many, many patients with a 24-hour urine of a volume that is less than, I mean, it's way less than two and a half liters, but certainly even less than a thousand cc's. It might even be seven or 800 cc's a day. Um, I will get referred patients who have, um, you know, they might have a, a low citrate with a volume of 900 cc's and the physicians put, put them on, you know, Eurocit K and alkalinization. I've never seen it published and I don't really have, I don't see people talking about it, but when I get those 24 hour urines, I tell the patient that if I can't get you above at least two liters, ideally two and a half liters a day, 
any other recommendations I make to you other than the empiric recommendations are really not going to be accurate. Um, you, is that a, a fair statement or have you seen anything? Uh, how do you manage patients with a just continuously low volume? You can't really manipulate a lot of the other parameters because when they become euvolemic, those might change. Absolutely. I, I think that is a good point. Um, you know, I think first thing when I see a low volume, I'm going to jump my eyes down to the 24-hour urine creatinine and make sure that this was a complete collection. Uh, and then once I've uh, made sure that it's a complete collection, I'll get a little more history from the patient. So, um, you know, I'll ask, was this a normal day for you? Uh, you know, usually if anything, patients are kind of cheating for the test and they'll drink more fluids than typical. But, um, you know, I'll be thinking about other things is this somebody who's having a lot of loose stools? And so they are drinking fluids, but they're losing a lot of their fluid through uh, their stool. And that's an important uh, factor for the management of stone disease because of the potential metabolic acidosis issues. And if you're talking about low citrate, that can be associated with, with as well. So sometimes that low volume can really be uh, an entryway into finding out about another health concern about a patient. You know, somebody with severe, or maybe even undiagnosed celiac disease can have be having a lot of loose stools and low urine volume. So um, that would be a typical next step. But then, you know, assuming that that is not what you're finding, and this is just somebody who doesn't drink a lot, that definitely is where I focus my initial efforts rather than delving into um, the other dietary strategies, I will say the biggest, most important thing that you can do is um, we got to figure out a way to help you learn to drink more fluids uh, because it will dilute everything in your urine and reduce those supersaturations. And that's going to be the biggest bang for your buck, if you will. Uh, in reducing your stone risk. So uh, at that point, I'll start chatting with them about strategies for improving fluid consumption. So setting timers, setting a fluid consumption per uh, per day goal and reaching for that over time. You know, you don't go out and run that marathon uh, the first week of your training. You start uh, with something a little bit smaller and slowly add per week. So I use a lot of uh, water bottles with markings on them, knowing how many times it has to be filled. Uh, cell phone reminders or apps for that recording, things like that um, can be really helpful. You have to give, I think, patients a, a, a strategy for how to increase their fluid consumption and remind them that it doesn't just have to be water. They can flavor it with a, a wide variety of you know, there are uh, different uh, commercial no calorie uh, powders that you can add to flavor your water, however you like. Sparkling water is fine, things like that. Yeah, I always also include lemonade. I try to, if they're really low in volume, I'll just tell them to add lemonade, you know, three times a day to their regimen just to not only get that little boost in citrate, but get the big volume boost as well. Yeah, I'm a little cautious about lemonade sometimes in a lot of my patients because I have a lot of patients with weight issues and diabetes. And um, part of why lemonade is delicious is that it comes with uh, the commercial lemonades tend to come with uh, a lot of sugar in them that are similar essentially to drinking soda. So, um, you know, I, I think some of the, you know, crystal light lemonades or things like that, I might hit on more, but some, you know, all things in moderation if, if drinking some lemonade is. Yeah. I, I, a great point. I definitely emphasize to them that, you know, if you can just make it out of regular lemons, either the lemon juice or the lemons, and then add some Splenda or some artificial yes. sweetener to, 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 to taste. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I agree. I think these sugary kind of um, 
uh, beverages with the corn syrup is really, uh, it's another battle we have to face, unfortunately. Yes. So let's shift gears just a little bit, if you, if you don't mind. Um, um, so empiric therapy or uh, the days of, you know, look, here's a diuretic and an alkalizing agent to come back in a year and we'll see how you're doing. Um, just maybe comment on what is maybe the current gold standard on, um, or is there a gold standard on empiric therapy, what it might contain? And uh, maybe just mention the current use of uh, sodium bicarbon, maybe the shift in, in thinking about that agent uh, as it relates to stone disease. Yeah, great question. So I, I think if there's a buzzword in medicine these days or a, a gold standard, if you will, um, I think it's personalized medicine, which I think we as stone doctors have long been trying to do. The whole idea of getting a 24-hour urine, I think, is to figure out what your patient's individual risk factors are rather than throwing the kitchen sink at them. So I, I think our job uh, as stone doctors is to uh, see where our patient is at, see what amount of workup they are interested in and able to comply with it. You know, it may be impossible for a flight attendant um, to do a 24-hour year on a day that reflects their uh, actual typical fluid consumption, for example. Um, so I, I think we have to meet our patients where they're at. So I think if we can find out what specific risk factors our patients have, that can be a great way to pick the interventions that are most likely to result in success. But there are a lot of folks who just can't um, you know, necessarily reliably get uh, frequent 24-hour urine testing done. Uh, and there are a lot of us as urologists who may not have access to these types of testing or may not have the comfort level uh, to do these types of testing. So the good news about the literature on stone disease is that there is actually a lot of support for empiric therapy. Um, so for example, the thiazide medications um, we think of them typically as somebody, we would use them in patients uh, who have calcium stones, who have hypercalciuria, uh, but there are a lot of empiric studies out there actually in the initial studies of these drugs that show, uh, that did not require hypercalciuria as an entry uh, requirement for participation in the study, and these drugs were still effective. So if you have a patient with calcium stones who you've tried some of the basic uh, empiric things uh, in terms of diet and fluids, uh, and they're still making stones or um, they're interested in doing something, but just can't get a 24-hour urine done, I think absolutely uh, you are likely to be successful with using a, a, a thiazide medication, uh, even if you haven't proven that they have hypercalciuria. Um, on a similar note, I think there uh, is a lot of role for uh, the use of alkalinizing uh, agents, which is sort of the catchphrase we use for uh, medications such as potassium citrate or potassium bicarbonate. And then I think more, uh, more new-ish to those of us who are uh, urologists, but not to our nephrology colleagues, is the use of sodium bicarbonate uh, for the management of hypocitraturia and uh, acidic urine. And these can be uh, really useful uh, adjuncts to therapy and applied in the empiric uh, realm as well. Um, I think you asked me how to 
uh, use or when were times that I might think about using uh, baking soda or uh, sodium bicarbonate. Uh, and at the University of Wisconsin, uh, I have a lot of really brilliant colleagues who are looking at this topic. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, using baking soda for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, you have a lot of patients who are already on a lot of uh, prescription medications or pills and the idea of needing to take another pill, especially something that's a large capsule like um, the uh, potassium citrate tablets are, is sometimes in itself daunting. And so people feel like it, it's a more uh, natural, if you will, uh, type of of uh, treatment, uh, which appeals to some folks, something, you know, I just tell them the orange box that you have in the cupboard is what we're talking about. Um, and so it's readily available. It's not a gigantic pill, which can be an issue for some patients to swallow. And it's dirt cheap, right? Literally dirt cheap. Uh, and for a lot of my patients who have limited finances, unfortunately, potassium citrate prescriptions are um, quite expensive. And if patients are on, uh, you know, a Medicare, they end paying for their prescriptions out of pocket, this can be a big expense for them. And so sometimes I'll even do some potassium citrate and then supplement with, um, with baking soda. The typical dose that we're using for baking soda is somewhere between a quarter and a half teaspoon uh, orally twice a day mixed in with liquids or foods, however they can get it down. There are also um, uh, sodium bicarbonate tablets that our nephrology colleagues have been using for years for the management of uh, acidosis in patients on dialysis. Um, so these are, are really helpful and widely available ways to both increase urine citrate uh, as well as to make urine less acidic. So I will put lots of my diabetic stone formers. I think baking soda is a great choice for that acidic urine that we're seeing uh, in patients with metabolic syndrome. Um, or if somebody, we've got, you know, a patient with uh, renal tubular acidosis who's needing a ton of alkalinizing agent per day, it might be nice to have some of that be in pill form and some of it be in an alternative uh, alkali formulation such as baking soda. Uh, and so mixing it up that way can be really helpful, I think, for our patients. That's fantastic. I mean, that, that I think really does help uh, the practitioner. I agree. Potassium citrate is merely a salt. Uh, it costs a fortune. I think it's the delivery system that the medicine has makes makes it expensive. Yep. Um, and it also is a huge pill for so a number of our older patients and, and debilitated patients. I, I just, uh, it's amazing that such a drug would be so cost prohibitive for our patients. So yeah. Um, yeah. sodium bicarb is really a great, a great option for them. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I think we're kind of nearing the end. I, I guess I would close it with one last question, which I think is always a, a very popular question at the end of any of these podcasts. And, you know, what is on the horizon? Um, how do we get rid of this awful 24-hour urine test? Because it is difficult to do. Um, I've done them myself, and uh, it's really not enjoyable. As you mentioned, many professions uh, just can't do it. And also, as you mentioned, it is really not representative the majority of times of what they are doing the other five or six days a week. And so it's a very artificial test, which doesn't necessarily give us accurate information. Um, it's, it's cumbersome. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of urologists really know what to do with the results, if they're just going to give a diuretic and bicarb anyway, and, and, and that's their, their treatment. So what do we have on the horizon that might really be helpful for our stone patients, at least in evaluating them uh, towards the goal of treating them better? 
Yeah. Um, so before we, we shift gears onto that, I do want to give one uh, big plug for doing 24-hour urines because, you know, I think the, the second reason besides finding out what the individual risk factors are uh, that 24-hour urines are really helpful is for patient compliance. So the World Health Organization tackled um, the question of long-term medication uh, and therapy compliance in a, a big report some years ago. And they found that some of the biggest barriers for patient compliance uh, with a long-term therapy were, first of all, that they didn't see immediate benefit to the pill that they're taking. Uh, and also then there are institutional barriers. So lack of positive reinforcement from the physician or a lack of availability uh, or resources for uh, education and follow-up. So I think those 24-hour urines, especially in your, our patients who we've put on some sort of treatment regimen, be it dietary or a medication. I think it is, um, you know, seeking the reduced stone recurrence. That's a, that's a carrot that's far off in the distance to chase after. So I, I think that 24-hour urine improvements can be extremely beneficial in patients so that they can see on that follow-up visit, you know, that you get three months after they start taking that baking soda, sprinkling it in their coffee every day, um, or whatever they're doing. Um, I think seeing that improvement on a 24-hour urine uh, really, really helps with compliance. And it also provides that opportunity to have that interaction with the clinician um, for that positive reinforcement. So I, I would put a plug in for that. But I, I do think that um, in terms of things on the horizon, um, I'm, I think genetic testing, there is something that's becoming uh, more and more uh, hopeful. Uh, we now have a new drug, uh, uh, lumastrin for uh, primary hyperoxyuria patients, which has been a dramatic, huge innovation uh, and I think has provided a promise of hopefully avoiding renal transplant in these folks. And they're currently looking at using that medication maybe in folks with other types of hyperoxyuria. Um, so I think genetic testing, we have some of that for RTA, of course, for cystinuria uh, and for primary hyperoxyuria. Um, I think we're hoping to find uh, easier ways to test the uh, potential genetic components um, of other types of calcium stone formation. Uh, which are probably multi-genetic. Um, but I, I think we are, again, with that personalized medic uh, medicine goal, I think we are feeling more and more comfortable with the idea of empiric therapy uh, and not applying the same, um, the same toolbox to every individual, regardless of situation. So I think um, there you know, it's a very hot topic that we see at our meetings, the debates about uh, empiric therapy. And I am wholeheartedly supportive of that. Uh, if that's what it uh, takes, if somebody will comply with an empiric therapy, I think the chances, we've only got a couple of drugs really that we use uh, routinely in uh, stone disease, you know, thiazides and alkalinizing agents, and we can apply them to multiple situations successfully. Great comments. Great comments. Uh, Dr. Best, um, really want to thank you uh, for sharing your uh, day with us and uh, your expertise for our guests. Uh, and uh, appreciate everyone for listening. Thanks so much. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.